May open in your Bibles, if you would, to First Peter. First Peter. Um, I understand you guys went through the book of First Peter a couple of years ago, and uh, we're behind you. We we have been in First Peter the last number of months, and just two weeks ago I preached this text. So we're we're working our way through chapter three. And today's text that uh, I'll be speaking from begins in 1 Peter 3.13. 1 Peter 3.13. I've debated uh, whether or not to get a running start and go back a few verses uh, rather than just jump right into our text. Um, this would have been familiar when I preached it to our church because the Sunday before we had covered the, the verses prior. Let me, let me go back to where Peter actually cites the 34th Psalm, and I'll begin reading uh, there in verse 10 where Psalm 34 is quoted, and then we'll get up to our text, all right? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For... The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now to our text, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will." than for doing evil. The title of my sermon this morning is Goodness, Suffering, and Hope. On the evening of uh, January 25th, 1736, so 1736 is, you know, I think 1776 when the United... So this is 40 years before the Declaration of Independence, all right? So, the evening of January 25th, 1736, 
John Wesley was on board a ship in the North Atlantic bound for Georgia. And a group of mission-minded German-speaking believers were also on the ship. And though Wesley was an ordained Anglican clergyman, he was not yet, according to his own testimony, born again. Intrigued by these Christians, he began teaching himself German to be able to converse more freely with them. Well, on this evening, the third in a series of violent storms. Now, this is January in the, in the North Atlantic. It's cold. On this evening, the third in a series of violent storms descended upon them with such fury that the sea broke completely over the deck covering the ship from stem to stern and splitting the mainsail. Their lives were in jeopardy. People screamed, they cried out, they trembled, and Wesley himself confessed his fear in his diary. But he noticed that throughout the panic, those German believers maintained their calm and continued singing hymns and praying together. Though I'm sure those Moravian brethren were also afraid to some degree, there was something about the beauty and the unshakableness of their faith that set them apart from everybody else in the storm. It set them apart in a way that captured Wesley's attention and led to his salvation. Wesley returned to England, spent time with the Moravian brethren there, and as a result of their influence, he experienced the new birth in 1738, within a couple of years. Now, Peter's original readers were not caught in the midst of a fearful storm at sea. They were in the midst of a fearful storm of slander abuse, and reviling. And the Holy Spirit here, through Peter, calls them to not be afraid or troubled when suffering for doing good, but to walk in such a deep hope in the midst of those fearful circumstances that outsiders would take notice of their holy lives and their trusting, calm demeanor and would be intrigued enough to inquire about the reason for their hope, just as Wesley did when observing the trusting calm of the Moravians. Now, that's a summary statement of the text. I'd like to break down that summary statement under three headings. Christian goodness, Christian suffering, and Christian hope. Christian goodness. The opening verse of our text says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? We find the theme of Christian goodness or Christian holiness, or, or righteousness throughout this epistle. In the opening verses, we learn that we've been elected 
unto salvation in the foreknowledge of God and in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that as obedient children, we're not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but we're to be holy in all our conduct since He is holy. Peter goes on to say that we're to conduct ourselves in fear throughout the time of our exile here, since we were ransomed from the feudal ways of our forefathers at a great cost by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, if in order to rescue you and me, the precious blood of the Son of God was shed, that ransomed we might live to glorify Him, having been ransomed and saved at such a cost, we should live holy lives to glorify Him, because that's why we were saved. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, through Peter, calls us to put away all malice, deceit, and hypocrisy, and to abstain from the passions of the flesh, keeping our conduct among the Gentiles so honorable that even when unbelievers call us evildoers, they might see our good deeds and in the end glorify Christ. We're to conduct ourselves in such an honorable way that the accusations that are made against us will seem ridiculous. These people can't be as evil as they're accused of being. Look at their lives. Look at how they live. Look at how they conduct themselves. Look at the beauty of holiness in them. People will discern the disconnect and in the end glorify Christ. Christian goodness is to be seen by the world in how we relate to human institutions, the emperor and to governors, being subject to them for the Lord's sake. Christian goodness is to be seen by the world in our marriages and in our moral and ethical conduct and in our unity with one another. Christian goodness is also to be seen by the world in our sympathy for one another, our love for each other, our humility. And hearts that are, are so tender and gracious that we don't revile back when we are reviled. In fact, we forgive our enemies just as Christ forgave us. Then, immediately preceding our text, Peter cites the 34th Psalm, giving his readers strong motivation for... Christian righteousness. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter's point is that. If we walk in Christian goodness, if we're zealous for good in all the ways that he's been talking about, then we will have the Lord's watchful and protective eye upon us. 
then the Lord's ear will be open to our prayers. Which brings us to the first verse in our text where Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now, there's a sense in which Peter is saying that when we walk in the kind of Christian goodness he's been describing, it will tend to reduce the likelihood of our meeting with hatred, with slander, with persecution, and with harm. Generally, people and governments oppose and prosecute evildoers. They don't normally come after good people. They come after bad people. That's just a sociological truism. Generally speaking, that's the case. Well, I think that's part of what Peter means when he asks, if you're zealous for what is good, who is there to harm you? I don't think the sociological reality is his main point. His main point is the eschatological reality, the ultimate reality. If you're zealous for good, then the Lord's watchful protective eye is upon you. His ear is ever attentive to your prayers, so nobody can ultimately harm you. Peter's main point is the same point Jesus was getting at when he said to Peter and the other disciples, you will be hated. Some of you, they will put to death. But I tell you, not a hair of your head will perish. Somehow, somehow, even in death, the believer is not harmed. Which gives us not only great comfort, but gives us courage. This is the same eschatological reality that Paul was driving out in Romans 8 when he asked rhetorically, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. Nobody can ultimately be against us. Not even death can harm us. Now I suppose some of Peter's readers thought What I thought, what some of you may be thinking, Peter, if we're good, who can harm us? Like, what kind of a question is that? Peter, I'll tell you who who can harm us. How about those who are reviling us and those who are slandering us? Or what about those who are stirring up public opposition against us? Or what about those who are seizing our property? Or what about those who hate us and constantly oppose us? Or what about those who threaten even our lives? Who can harm us? The same kind of people who killed John's brother, your friend, the Apostle James. The same kind of people who tried to kill Paul, but he narrowly escaped being let out of a window in the city wall. The same people who caused riots when the gospel was preached. The same kind of people, both Jews and Gentiles, who killed Jesus. That's who can harm us. Which brings us to our second heading. Christian suffering. Suffering for goodness. 
Now, now Peter was not deluded or detached from reality. The apostles were keenly aware of the realities of tribulation, of distress, of persecution, of danger, and even of sword. In a few short years, both Peter and Paul will be martyred for being Christians. And widespread persecution of the church would follow. And if I could just say parenthetically, or just pause for a moment. Uh, look, we, we have scarcely been persecuted in this country. Uh, we have to be careful that we don't, uh, you know, that we don't adopt a martyr complex, uh, you know, in view of how little we have actually suffered. But Christians have been reviled and slandered in the here and now. And my concern is that our response, and by our response I mean us as Christians uh, in America, I'm concerned that our response to what little abuse we've experienced can betray an ignorance of what the Holy Spirit calls us to in this text. I'm, I'm thinking about... I'm thinking about the Lord's rebuke to Jeremiah the prophet. Hey, if you can't run with the footmen, what are you going to do when they're coming on horses? Now, Peter is not naive. He's keenly aware of the reality that there are many who hate the Christian definition of what it means to be good. He knows that many people feel threatened or indicted or accused simply by the lives and the testimony of righteous living Christians. He knows that those kind of people will sometimes heap abuse upon Christians, all of course within the bounds set by the will and the providence of God. He gets to it later on in, in chapter 4. You don't run with them, you don't carouse with them, they heap abuse upon you. So Peter acknowledges that reality, the reality that, that people do come against Christians for their goodness. He acknowledges that reality by saying, but if we suffer for righteousness' sake, we will be blessed. If we suffer for righteousness' sake, we will be blessed. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you. And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven. Your reward in heaven is great. If you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed 
because your reward is great in heaven. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, the eternal honor bestowed on you will far outweigh the brief disgrace that you suffer. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, the unending delights of the reward you are entitled to will far outweigh the short-lived distress of their abuse. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, your future gains will far outweigh your present losses at their hands. In fact, Jesus says that the future blessing for suffering persecution is so great that it's cause for present rejoicing. The future blessing is so great that it's cause for present rejoicing. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Next, the Holy Spirit in this text calls us to not fear our abusers. To not fear our abusers. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now here, Peter is quoting Isaiah 8, where the Lord called Isaiah and the righteous remnant to not be afraid like everybody else was in Judah, of the threats that were made against them by the northern kingdom in league and concert with and alliance with the Assyrians. So Isaiah 8 says, Do not fear what they fear, everybody else in Judah. Do not fear what they fear or be in dread. But the Lord of hosts him you shall regard as holy. Let your fear, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. John Piper says in connection with fearing God in this text, he says, he is not saying to be constantly gripped by the emotion of fear, but rather always regard the displeasure of God as more fearful than the displeasure of man. What God wants here from Isaiah is for the prospect of offending God to be much more to be a much more dreadful thing to him than the prospect of being persecuted by men. Now church history teaches us that the greater the threat to Christians when persecuted the harder it is for believers to not submit to the will of those who slander and persecute. The greater the threat to Christians when persecuted, the harder it is for believers to not yield and submit to the will of those who slander and persecute. And what the Holy Spirit calls us to here is to not be afraid of those who malign us 
but instead to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. That is, to resolve in the midst of this persecution and this opposition to not submit to the will of the slanderers and the abusers and the persecutors, but to resolve to honor Him, to obey Him, and to do His will come what may. I'll leave it at that. We've looked at Christian goodness. We've looked at Christian suffering for goodness. Now let's consider Christian hope. Christian hope. Don't be afraid of them. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. And always, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Hope. That has also been a recurrent theme in this epistle. The opening verses of 1 Peter speak of our having been born again to a living hope. It's the hope of a salvation which is imperishable and unfading and kept in heaven for us. We've been born again to a living hope. Our hopes, Peter explains, are fundamentally eschatological. That is, they're, they're, our hopes are in what is ultimately going to come to pass when Christ returns. So he says in verse 13, 1 Peter 1, 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is absolutely one of my favorite verses. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is, this is critical. We don't ultimately, ultimately locate our hopes in this life. Right. Right. We used to sing it. My hope is not in this life. Or what? This passing world's reward. Did you sing that song? Mark Altrogi? Anchor beyond the veil. My hope is not in this life where this passing world's reward. My hope is in a life that will never fade. My hope is in you, Jesus, risen King, ascended Lord. Even death could not hold you in the grave. He is our anchor beyond the veil. We don't ultimately locate our hopes in this life. We don't locate our hopes in a politician. We don't locate our hopes in a spouse. We don't locate our hopes in Grace Church or Sovereign Grace Churches or a pastor or in a pastoral team or in our parents or in our children or in our grandchildren. We don't ultimately locate our hope in doctors or in medicine or anything in this life. Set your hope, says Peter, Fully, which means completely and totally. Set your hope fully on one thing. Grace. What grace? The grace that will be brought to you. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when... At the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
The threat of death was very pronounced on that ship crossing the Atlantic in 1736. People screamed, they cried out, they trembled, but the German believers maintained a calm, anchored in hope. A hope that was beyond this life. It was a hope that they felt in the midst of the storm. And Wesley, intrigued, inquired about that hope. John Piper says in connection with this, he says, don't meditate beforehand on how to answer somebody's question. In other words, it's not necessary that you become an expert in apologetics. You don't need to memorize all the defeater questions in Tim Keller's Reason for God, which is, by the way, a wonderful apologetic book. Don't meditate beforehand on how to answer somebody else's question. Our primary activity in preparing to witness is to keep our hearts happy in God. It has become clearer to me than ever before that the reason we aren't more free and natural in testifying to our neighbors and associates about the reality of our hope in Christ is that we don't feel very hopeful. It's that we don't feel very hopeful. But we should feel hopeful. (laughs) We should feel hopeful. Why? Jesus Christ, our Savior, looked upon our helpless estate and shed his own blood for our souls. And now our sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Thus, we have been fully reconciled to God by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and a sense of the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So in the midst of opposition and reviling and slander, we can be filled with hope because now and forever we are eternally safe and secure under the watchful eye of God, under His hearing ear and beneath His everlasting arms. We should be hopeful. And there's a sense in which even as the opposition, should it increase, if if that opposition increases, our hope should increase. And when people see that hope, what is with you? If we were you, we'd be scared to death. Why are you not afraid? Why are you not afraid even to die? Ah, We have hope in Christ. Now, we're to defend our hope in Christ with gentleness and respect. You know, when we're slandered, when we're mocked, when we're threatened, we can be tempted to mount a sharp, hostile counterattack. But Peter here disallows any kind of an abrasive or caustic or coarse response in kind. Maintain your Christian goodness 
in the face of that onslaught. Don't, don't, start, don't, be, don't start being bad now. Maintain your holiness and your goodness and the grace of the Christian life. There's an opportunity here for the gospel if we do that. If we respond in kind, we lose the opportunity. We're just like everybody else. So, respond, defend your hope with gentleness and respect. And then he says, we're to testify having a good conscience, verse 16. You know, I think along two lines when when I read that. One is that it's almost impossible for us to effectively shine the spotlight on our glorious hope in Christ when conscience is shining the spotlight on the sin in our lives. Undealt with sin makes us unready for witness. I love the admonition that Paul gave Timothy. I've got it on my filing cabinet. I'm old school. I still have a big metal filing cabinet. I've got a magnet on there with this text on there. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, notice, ready for every good work. Cleansing ourselves from what is dishonorable. Maintaining a clear conscience. We're ready to give a defense of the gospel when the opportunity presents itself. So readiness involves having already responded to the Spirit's conviction. Repenting and confessing and receiving forgiveness and receiving once again a clear conscience. The second thing I think about when he says maintain a clear conscience is... Let's respond to those who oppose and mock and abuse us in a way that conscience will approve and commend. You don't want to respond in a way that afterwards your conscience is not clear on how you handled that. Already pretty much covered that ground, so let me conclude. Our text today has has not been really about suffering in general. When I first received this assignment from Jared Mellinger, the bill, you know, here's your text. Um, I thought, oh, well, I'm going to have to develop a little bit of a theology of suffering. And then I, as I, the more I studied the text, I thought, no, this is not a broad, you know, this is not a broad consideration of suffering. Our text has not been about suffering in general. It's been about a specific kind of suffering, suffering for doing good. And the final verse in our text, verse 17, makes it clear that sometimes... It will be God's will for us to suffer for righteousness' sake. He says, if, it's, if, it's go- if that should be God's will. Paul said to Timothy, indeed, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So sometimes it's going to be God's will for us to suffer some measure or degree or form of persecution. So when that happens to you, not if, when that happens to you, remember 
that the Lord's eye is upon you and his ear is attentive to your prayer. Remember that a a blessed reward is coming to you for having endured that. And may the Holy Spirit so fill your heart with hope in the promises of God that even when you're slandered or maligned or threatened, you will be able to peaceably testify. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. There's a peace like a river. Because of the promises of our God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Thanks so much.